If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog, and I'm joined in the studio with my two companions, Kira, my lovely wife, and Joshua, uh, whatever you happen to be over there. (laughs) You got the hair thing going on again. I think it's just one of those avoidance things, or you're just trying to not show off your cranium size. Right, right. All right, guys, today on the show, we have a good one coming your way. We're going to be talking about brain size, brain size. Does size matter? Uh, Well, Let's find out. Let's just dig right into it and find out. Brain size has long been assumed to be a predictor of intelligence, hence my big head. There you go. (laughs) The evolution of the human brain size is mostly responsible for this assumption. As the brain size of the earliest humans increased, time devoted to social interactions also increased, which then led to Use sociality, which led to the modern man, today's man, and to smartphones, which is now leading us to non-sociality and smaller brain sizes, no doubt. Um, And because we humans uh, often make incorrect assumptions regarding our dog's behavior, its cognition, based on its breed, size, and everything else, we have formed the same preconceived notion that bigger is better when it comes to the size of the brain in our dogs. We have. I, I, have I had, haven't. I disagree. Well, that's I, only because you have your small dogs. I have but the tinies. I cannot tell you how many clients I've had over the years that absolutely do believe that, that they're, they've owned small dogs, they've owned large dogs, and they believe that their larger dogs were more intelligent than their toy dogs. They've never met the rats. Okay, if they did, uh, then this radio show would be concluded because we'd have absolute (laughs) positive proof of what everyone is assuming here nowadays. Um, But we'll get into why people do perceive that. And I'm just going to kind of let a little thing out here. I always, I never had really small dogs. I had big Huskies. I had big German Shepherds, Belgian Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, you name it. I've always been a big dog guy. And I thought a lot of my dogs were very smart. And I thought that they were smarter, or at least they were more trainable, and maybe that's the term we should use, than a lot of the smaller dogs I've worked with over the years. Okay, so nothing against small dogs, own a couple of them, but that was my perception and still is uh, to a degree when it comes to the larger dogs I've worked with and a lot of the smaller dogs. But again, we'll get into why I even think like that. So, uh, easy over there. You can move over just a little (laughs) bit there. Uh, Well, again, that's what we perceive as humans. So, the University of Southern Mississippi, hey, right there, neighbors uh, right down the road from us, decided to investigate cognitive differences in spatial memory ability based on size and domestic dogs. All right, so they heard all this, these assumptions, and they embarked upon finding out, is this true or is it not true? But 
before they started their investigation, they interviewed a large group of dog owners and found this. Judgments regarding intelligence in dogs are generally based on how well members of a breed respond to training. So again, I, I guess I fall in that group. Uh, I'm guilty of that. I fell in that group. I just worked a lot of large dogs, police canines, you name it. They're all big. Um, none of the police officers I ever worked with carried around an ankle holster dog. So they didn't just whip out this little tweenie and said, hey, you halt. Stop doing what you're doing. Uh, it was always a larger dog. It, how? That's always been a big question of mine is how do you judge intelligence in a dog just because, you know, a lot of people will look at a dog who really likes food. And so they problem solve the crap out of what you want them to do because they want that food. But then, you know, I'll just use two of my own dogs as an example. I have a Belgian Malinois who will do absolutely anything for a tug toy. Absolutely anything. Teach her to stand on her head if you want to for that tug toy. And then I have a hound dog who just, I mean, he doesn't care. Oh, you got food? Yeah, I'll take some of that food. Oh, you want me to work for it? No, I'll go lay down. <laughs> right. But you put that hound dog out in the middle of nowhere and ask him to find his way back home. He'll get it done. And he has gotten it done before. But the Belgian Malinois, probably not so much. So it, it, how are you going to judge the intelligence on these dogs has always been a big question. So I really look forward to kind of breaking this study down. Yeah. And I think what we're going to get to here towards the end, not to give you a teaser, is why does it matter? Right. You know, what is the importance of the intelligence? I mean, look at human beings. You have geniuses in art. They're incredible geniuses in music, in science. We all have gifts. And how do you measure that in intelligence? I love uh, what Dr. Franz de Waal said. Most animals are only know what they need to know. In other words, would it be fair to judge a squirrel because it can't count the 10 as inferior when a nut, uh, Clark's nutcracker, a bird, can hide 20,000 pine nuts in the spring and locate every single one of them six months later in the fall? Yeah, it's remarkable. How many humans can do that? So where do you draw the line? What is intelligent and what is not? What... I think it's very difficult to do that. And, and more than anything, I just really think it's unfair. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of what do you need that particular human or dog to be able to do and to say, uh, okay, you can't find 20,000 pine nuts like a little bitty bird with a little bitty bird brain can do. So therefore you are dumb. Uh, again, it just doesn't fit. But anyway, so the, but good point, the university of uh, uh Memphis, uh, not Memphis, I'm sorry. I live here in Memphis, Mississippi. <laughs> sorry about you Southern guys down there. Close enough. Yeah, they, close enough. Like I said, they are neighbors. But the University of Southern Mississippi embarked upon trying to find out, was there a difference, is there, between larger dogs and small dogs when it comes to spatial memory? But again, like I was saying, they interviewed dog owners. And the first one, they found out judgments regarding intelligence in dogs are generally based on how well members of a breed respond to training. So we talked about that. Smaller dogs are perceived as neurotic, intolerant of others, and introverted, traits which are negatively correlated with motivation and trainability. That's not true. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> they, there's a group of people out there that, are, that will differ in hmm. their opinions when it comes to that. So now, once they were armed with that information from doing their poll and their interviews, they set out. 
And as a result, small dogs, they found out from these people before they started their tests, are perceived to be less trainable and therefore less intelligent. Uh, so go ahead and show the picture up there for everyone. Uh, those of you listening on the radio, you won't be able to see a picture, but if you hop on our Facebook page or YouTube, you'll be able to see the picture. And that is the picture of one and only Dave or chicken, Dave or chicken or the rat, one of the rats <laughs> or the one who can't figure out how to go up the stairs and has to be retrained over and over and over again. But anyway, not to beat up the point there, but that's Dave back there. He's, Look at that. He's the less intelligent of the two. <laughs> All right. Is smart. If you can judge a book by its cover, enough said. Let's move on. Okay, so they set up out on the study, and with the study, they compared the performance of 20 large dogs. And when I say large dogs, they generally ranged over 50 pounds, 10 males, 10 females, and 20 small dogs, 10 males, 10 females, on a series of 13 visible and invisible displacement tasks in order to determine if large dogs perform better on these tasks than small dogs. So let's describe the task real quick. They had dogs held at a distance by their owners about five feet from several occluder cups. Now, occluder cups are, again, that's just a scientific word that gets thrown out there in these studies. It's just a cup that you simply can't see through. So it could just be a plastic cup that's a different color, whatever, but you just cannot see through it. So it wouldn't be like a turvis tumbler or anything else or a glass. It's, anything inside that cup is hidden from view. And they would take a treat on one of the cups. They had several cups and they would station the cups one foot apart. And they would start off with three cups and finally work their way up to almost a dozen cups stationed one foot apart. And what they would do is show this dog stationed five feet away a treat. And then they would place the treat on top of one of these cups, then place another cup on top of it, then seal it with clear tape and then had tiny little holes in the very top to allow the scent to come out of the top of the cup. Now, they were not trying to, in the study, it was not the point to see if the dog could identify or uh, locate the treat by using olfactory scents. It was memory. They simply needed to control where the scent was. If the dog did not have, like you mentioned, if it didn't have motivation, why do I need to go over there and look around those cups. Big deal. Well, if I see a treat and suddenly the treat disappears and there's some human holding the treat and they're playing with a bunch of cups, well, then there's a great chance that maybe that treat is somewhere over there near those cups. So again, without a reward, uh, we, we did it with your dog Vesper. Without the toy, why, why bother to go search if there's no tug toy? There has to be incentive. So they used the treat as incentive, but they did not want the treat to contaminate the surface, the testing surface. And that's what would happen if you did perhaps something equivalent to a shell game. If you put the treat on a mat and then put the cup over the treat, granted, the dog would not be able to see the treat. But once the cup was lifted and the treat was taken by the dog, that whole area is now contaminated which means you could get false positives. You could get uh, signals from the dog and the dog would pick that particular spot and go back to that spot repeatedly first. And therefore it would uh, skew the, the results of the test. So to keep that contamination from happening, 
the treat was never placed on the mat. It was placed between the two cups. But it does, uh, they, they referred to another study that was similar to it and another one that was similar to it. And I researched all three and there was no mention whatsoever that, hey, possibly, quite possibly, could the dogs be locating the cup with the treat in it with its nose versus with its memory? So, you know, we don't know that answer. So let's just kind of keep going. So let's just assume that they could not. So in the first test, uh, there was a series of, again, 13 trials. And the first one would be the person would place the treat in the cup then place the cup down on the ground. One foot away would be a cup without a treat. Another foot away would be a cup without a treat. Then they would take the dog, spin the dog around one time, then release it. And therefore, the dog would then go over. And the first cup that it touched with its nose or any part of its body was its choice. All right. So now when you start off with three, you are you have a less than chance at predicting which cup it is. Meaning if you only have two, you have 50-50. 50-50 in science means chance. So I had a less than chance. And they did this over and over again. They started adding more cups to their trials. And then they would actually do what's called the invisible test in which the experimenter who was manipulating the treat would turn their back on the dog, not allowing the dog to see exactly where the treat was, and then send the dog over based upon memory of the last location in which the treat uh, had been found. And in all occasions, the dog was given a treat if it located it properly. So anyway, they, they did this over and over again with 40 dogs and all 40 dogs did 13 trials. At any given point, did the dog show no motivation for the treat? The test for that particular dog was suspended until the dog showed motivation for the treat. Because again, why would I bother? Why am I going to bother to go over there and try and pick out a cup if there's no benefit for me? So with all animal testing, three things always must be taken into account. Attention, motivation, and cognition. So they were looking for the cognition. They're using the motivation of the treat. And the experimenter waving the treat and then placing it in the cup was the attention part of it. So all that was actually very well done. So let's kind of get right to the results. So what did they find out? Well, guess what? Based on test results, there was no difference between the performance of large dogs and small dogs or between males and females. Now, that's the hardest part to understand. You'd think those males would definitely kind of gotten one over on those females. Whatever. So anyway, but again, I have my own assumptions. <laughs> and let me tell you about the testing I did to arrive at that assumption there. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so again, they, there you go. So large dogs, at least in spatial memory, show no greater advantage than small dogs. But here's another interesting thing about this. So again, kind of going to go a little bit deeper here. They were disappointed in their test. Why? Because their findings were in contrast of a 2010 social cognition test performed by William Helton and Nickel Helton of the University of Canterbury and Michigan Technological University, respectively. Uh, this test that was performed in 2010 was performed on 104 dogs that were separated into two groups consisting of an equal amount of large dogs and small dogs. Now, they did remove or exclude one type of dog in this testing, 
And it was dogs that had the brachycephalic type condition. In other words, their eyes are further apart than about 80 centimeters. Whenever we have that with dogs, and, and typical breeds that you'll see this in would be French Bulldogs, Bull Mastiffs, Bull Terriers, Boxers, Pugs, Shih Tzus, Lhasa Apsos, Pekingese, and so on and so forth. You run the risk that when the eyes are spread too far apart, especially if they're canted at an unnatural angle, which you see in a lot of pugs, uh, you can definitely, definitely see it in them. Yeah. Then you, the problem is, is that you don't have enough ocular overlap, meaning your bifocal vision now starts to become extremely impaired to almost zero. And when that happens, there's a difficulty in short distance depth perception. Now, you can be monocular, just having one eye. Let's say maybe you're a human and you wear a patch uh, over your eye. Uh, you, either way, if you can't see out one eye, you still have depth perception at a distance. But the closer you be, uh, arrive at an object, the closer you become to an object, then you don't have as much. It starts becoming a little bit more two-dimensional versus three-dimensional. So they excluded these dogs from the testing because of the problem that Again, the results could be clouded or the results could be misleading simply because they didn't have the physical ability to complete the task successfully like other dogs could. Now, in this particular test, they were looking to see if dogs could recognize and understand human gestures. How quickly could they understand those human gestures? If we were, for example, to give our dogs any sort of sign language, any sort of signal, any sort of uh, silent communication, just using body English. Like a lot of people always want to teach their dogs commands. They ask us all the time, can, you, can my dog learn how to do this just off of hand signals? And I tell them, you know what? Every single time you train your dog, you're actually going to be teaching it some sort of visual signal because they learn from their eyes first, touch second, smell and hearing distant third and fourth. Uh, so in this particular test, it was designed to point to a bowl that had food, and it was to see if the dog would recognize that this point was indicating that there was food in the bowl, meaning I understand what the human's trying to tell me, and now go to that particular bowl. So it was a, a test that had a level of chance, meaning there were only two bowls. And what happened was, in short, the owner of the dog held the dog, uh, an experimenter stood about anywhere from six to 10 feet away, depending on the size of the dog, turned his back on the dog, had two bowls, put a treat in one bowl, the other bowl was empty, turned, faced the dog, set both bowls down in front of him or her uh, with the, at, at the proper, at the exact same distance apart. And then the experimenter would stand, face the dog that was being tested, fold their arms across their body, and wait until the dog made eye contact with them. Once the dog did, then they would very quickly, in less than a second, point at the bowl that held the tree. Then they had to fold their arms. And once their arms were folded and they could not look at either bowl, the dog was released. And the dogs went over and again to their thing. And the results for that was that the larger dogs did do better. They were far, far greater at locating accurately the first time the treat in the bowl, um, much more so than with small dogs. That, that's very easily explained too, why that would be the case, why these dogs, the larger dogs would 
perform better than the small dogs, just based off of the majority of what these larger dogs are bred to do. Um, large portion of the larger dogs are bred to work with people and, and uh, do jobs that are required to read a human's body gestures. So it makes sense that the, the larger dog would would do better at that where the smaller dog was basically meant to sit on the lap and not really read a whole lot of gestures at all. Yeah. And that was actually the, there were three factors that they admitted once the test was complete. Of course, anytime one of these research programs is, is finished and has published their findings, they can sit back for a little bit and expect this to immediately be challenged by their peers. That is a given, and that should be done. It kind of opens up, hey, did you really think about this while you were doing the test? And what about if we do this in the future? And I actually don't think your results are accurate because of this reason, that reason, which is wonderful because it makes everyone go back to the drawing board and go, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. So it was, it was welcome, and it happened. And their peers, other scientists, raised three objections. They said, okay, first of all, Large dogs have more consistent experience with human gestures than smaller dogs, or at least the consequences of the gestures are more strictly enforced with larger dogs. In other words, the tolerance of disobedience in larger dogs is different than for smaller dogs. A disobedient large dog is a greater relative threat or danger than a disobedient small dog. Definitely. Definitely. Everyone knows that. A large dog being disobedient that's a lot harder to live with and definitely can be more dangerous than any small dog that is disobedient. That's given. So that was one objection that was raised to that study. The other one was just from a physical standpoint, larger dogs have greater interocular distances than smaller dogs, which means I already covered it, greater depth perception. So from that distance, they were able to see the gesture uh, easier and make it out definitely a lot better than small dogs uh, could. And then lastly, large dogs are bred, and Joshua, you touched on this. Large dogs are bred to work with people, whereas smaller dogs are typically just companions. The difference in ability is likely the result of direct genetic influence on communication skills. So again, we used large dogs to help us way back in the day. They were hunting partners. They herded our sheep for us, our livestock. And hey, you dogs way over there, I need that 60 head of cattle to move in this direction and then to go in that pen over here. Well, that does require communication. It requires gestures as you point where you want these cattle to go, so on and so forth. So that's really easy to understand that larger dogs have spent more time with humans observing and working with them, especially off of what their eyes, you betcha, gestures. So these were very, very, well, what I call reasonable objections, very reasonable, <clears throat> and they all stand for sure. But here's my problem that I have with this whole test from um, Helton and Helton. A lot of professional trainers today, and I'm going to pick on because I always pick on my profession because we should get picked on. Again, no different than your peers. If I do a study, I do research, and I publish it, then there's no problem with my peers challenging me on, on my results. So again, this is what makes the profession better, is if we challenge one another. 
So my problem with this is over the last decade, this, first of all, this study was done a decade ago. And the field of neurobiology is at a pace right now that where every decade you won't recognize the previous decade. Things will be way out of uh, tradition by that point there. We will not have the same sort of results 10 years from now that we're, that we're arriving at today. It's just a fast-moving field. You have engineers jumping into it. Psychologists are jumping into it. The study of neurobiology. And it's probably being prompted by a lot of artificial intelligence type designs, computers, you name it, so on and so forth. Well, how do humans move? How do humans think? Uh, and then again, when we do that, we can draw some conclusions as to, in some comparisons as to how animals think. How do they move? Well, that's why we've studied them for years in laboratories. You know, if there wasn't any sort of continuity between a rat's brain and a human's brain, why would we study it for stress responses? Because there is continuity. But so many times these trainers will refer to this as the holy grail of sorts that points to the fact that dogs no longer have any sort of internal communication mechanisms connected back to the wolf. They will say, this proves it. These dogs have essentially telepathy with these humans. They can communicate so well with humans that they know where, why, why the human is even pointing at something, let alone where it is pointing. Yes, they do so well with humans. Again, a group of scientists, including that scientists were many of them, Robert Sapolsky, Franz de Waals, and so on and so forth. They got together and they came up with this kind and they ran that same test and then they took it to another level and another level and another level and they used human raised wolves and their conclusion was human raised wolves followed hand points as well as dogs, if not better. A few differences persisted though, such as that wolves looked less at human faces than dogs and were more self-reliant. When dogs tackle a problem they cannot solve, they look back at their human companion to get encouragement or assistance, something that the wolves never did. Wolves kept trying and trying on their own. Domestication may be responsible for this particular difference. Instead of intelligence, though, it seems more of a question of temperament and relations with us. Those weird bipedal apes that the wolf evolved to fear and the dog was bred to please. Absolutely true. So again, the wolves actually did just as well, if not better than the dogs. And therefore, it just proves everything. It just proves that we still have a connection, that dogs did not suddenly forget about their wolf ancestry, and they did not suddenly evolve into animals who can share uh, encoded messages just from mental processing and pointing, and gestures, and so on and so forth. No, the wolf could do it too. And therefore, let's go back to nature, and one of the issues that we have, and one of the things that we have definitely arrived at, is that when you point at anything, anything that holds a tree, anytime you show that there is food somewhere, then an animal is going to be very interested in finding out where that food went. And again, even if I'm not food-motivated, Simply withhold food for a day, two days, and I guarantee you, now they're motivated. I need to find out where that food is. That goes back to nature. Wolves cache food. They bury food. 
They have to know where that location is. No different than the Clark's Nutcracker. I have to know where those pine nuts are. I'm an animal. I know what I need to know. So all animals, whether they be a dog, whether they be a wolf, are more than capable of spatial memory. Where was that kill that I was not able to eat all of two days ago? Where was it? Or where is the food that I dug a deep hole and buried the other day? Where is the outer line edges of my territory where the elk migrate? How many times have we observed, Kira, uh, we'll have one of our dogs will suddenly like, for example, look underneath the sofa. And within seconds, everyone else is fully alert, fully awake, and they're all gathered around. <laughs> what is underneath the sofa? What could it be? Is it food? And by golly, drop a piece of food. Drop a piece of food out in the yard, and you, you can go out in the yard. You can be 10, 15 feet away carrying some food with you and suddenly come walking back from that area, and all the dogs leave the spot where they were, were at that moment and head out to the area in which there was food because they know Brian's probably going to drop it. Uh, and now there's going to be some food out there. But this is, they have to know this, guys. So at the end of the day, what does all this mean for you? You know, we talked about before the show. What does it really mean? Does it matter? Here's what it means. And here's the only thing that I worry about. I don't want people to not apply training to their small dogs or to give up on training with their small dogs because they assume, uh, I just guess I'm wasting my time. This little guy just isn't picking it up like my big boy was over there. I'm just going to give up on it. I even read somewhere that small dogs aren't that intelligent. So why even bother? No, that's not the case. Again, there are different incentives for different dogs. There are different levels of problem solving for different dogs. Size really does not matter. That creature's brain was formed to be in that size of a cranium. It doesn't mean that just because I have less neurons than the larger dog, it's all a matter of do the neurons talk to the other neurons. If they don't, then it doesn't matter how many you have. You want to learn more about that study, dementia in humans, study Alzheimer's disease, so on and so forth. So I think that's the biggest thing is don't read something, hear something, get something sensationalized in some magazine and think, I've got a small dog, so why even bother? Or I've got a big dog, so why bother either? They're really smart. They'll pick up on it on their own. No. And I've always told people, dogs can learn bad things, things that we determine to be bad behaviors, every bit as quickly as they can learn good things. It's just a matter of incentive. There's, there's a you know, saying that we always say, the bigger the dog, the bigger the problem. So when you have a small dog and you're experiencing these behavioral issues, what a trainer would call behavioral issue, they may go unlooked because the dog isn't really causing a whole lot of stress because of its size. But now you put that dog in that in a different body, same behavior. And now all of a sudden this human's living in a chaotic world. So I always try to look at, look at it from the dog's perspective. Even if the dog's behavioral issues aren't causing the human stress, think about the lifestyle that that dog is living. So just because you have a small dog doesn't mean that your dog's not suffering from the same you know, lack of structure, the chaotic mind, the, the chaotic uh, routines and things like that, that your older dog is, you're just not experiencing the, 
the symptoms and the repercussions of, of that lifestyle. Yep, absolutely. Again, one of those factors there that we, we become more urgent when we have large dogs. I mean, just look at housebreaking. I just boil it right down to that. I cannot tell you how many clients I've had over the years in which the eight-year-old toy dog was still soiling the house. And yet, eh, that's not a huge deal. I can clean it up. But then they either adopt or purchase a dog that is going to be 80 pounds. Now, all of a sudden, it's a huge deal. They're very urgent and they get it done, but yet they never get it done with the small dog. So again, the bigger you are, you're right, the, the bigger the problem and therefore is the bigger the motivation. I just don't want people to ever think and read something and think that small dogs are dumb. Well, and, and small dogs are a little bit harder to train just in that they're so tiny. You really have to have an incredible skill set yeah, to train a small dog. Yeah. And they're not as tolerant. Again, we did that. So if you want to blame anyone, point your finger at yourself. We did that. We did not require too many small dogs to perform task force. You know, we had Jack Russells and rat terriers and if you want to classify them as small and so on and so forth. But for the most part, a lot of these dogs nowadays are just there to be our companions, mm -hmm. to warm our laps, uh, to bring a smile to our face. And, and as long as they're getting that thing done right there, they're lowering your blood pressure, they're making your life a brighter world, happier world, there you go. There you go. So anytime you train an animal, you have to have a goal in mind. And make sure when you have that goal in mind, that particular animal can do that. But I'm here to tell you all the things that we need small dogs to be able to do, housebreaking, maybe not bark all the time, uh, maybe not chew on my furniture. And yeah, little small dogs can trip you when, they, when you try to walk them, so on and so forth. They can all learn it. They can. They have enough intelligence to live compatibly with human beings. There you go. And that's it. All right, guys, we're going to take a real short break. And then we come back, we have questions to answer. We had some good questions coming this week. I, I say that every week, but I'll tell you what it amazes me. It's like someone is on the show, either watching us or listening to us, and they go, oh, all right, that was a good question. I can up that one. I'm going to top it. <laughs> yeah, it's like someone just keeps up in the ante, and it's like, I'm going to stump Brian. And I'm going, you're right, you're going to stump me. <laughs> it's going to happen. I don't I know. I don't believe it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, well, I've got, I've got resources to my left and to my right. <laughs> so I'll be one of those where, man, that question is so easy. I'm going to let Joshua answer. Just call, <laughs> just call me Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go. All right, guys, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back, and we'll get to answering those questions. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? 
If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. After years of waiting, there's a radio show for shotgunning enthusiasts worldwide. Tune into Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation for the very best in wing and clay shooting talk. Join Marty and his guests as they bring you hunting and shooting information that you can use. So whether you're a beginner or a seasoned pro, this show can be your go-to source for wing and clay shooting information. Listen live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for Marty Fisher's Wing and Clay Nation on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. To reach the program today, send an email to Brian at tamingthewild.com. Now, back to the show. Oh, there are some people that definitely have my email address because we've gotten some really good questions in here. Yep. So let's get started on those questions. Sounds good. Okay. I free feed my dog dogs with no problems. However, a trainer advised me not to do so. Are there benefits to controlled feeding or is free feeding better if your dog does not overeat? I used to free feed some of the dogs. Moses, he was a free, well, he ate everything, but. Um. Yeah, he free, he was free, you know, <laughs> right? If it didn't cost him anything, it went down the hatch. It was free. Um, I think just to start right off the bat, the first sentence was I free feed my dogs with no problems. Okay, I'm going to be the first to tell you this if you hadn't heard it before. If it ain't broke, don't go breaking it. So in other words, don't go picking battles that you don't need to pick. There are plenty of them out there to work on. So this particular person, if you're not having any problems, let it go. Let it go. Don't, don't change a thing. But okay. Those of you who are listening going, okay, wait a minute. I do have a little bit of a problem. So let's talk about it. Are there any benefits to control feeding or is free feeding better if your dog does not overeat? All right. Right off the bat, just bacteria. You know, for example, when you're giving dogs treats for, uh, for training, every time they take that treat from your hand, there's now, they are now transferring uh, oral bacteria onto your fingers, which then now you're putting that in that treat bag. And hence, every time you use the same treats over and over again for many training sessions with different dogs, and then if some dog becomes ill, well, there's one of the main reasons why you transfer bacteria from dog A to dog B because you now have oral bacteria all over those treats in that bag. Anytime you allow a dog to free feed, if they do not consume all of the food, then there is oral bacteria all over that food. And again, the veterinarians that used to work with me at our vet hospital would say all day long, they recommend do not free feed just because of that very reason, just the growth. You're going to have a science project. So that's number one. Uh, number two, yes, this particular person who asked a question, their dog does not overeat, but man, that is not the case. Most dogs will overeat, especially if they ever transition from control feeding to free feeding. Now, many dogs after a year, 
of this transition, they will only eat what they need. But there are others. I kid you not. We never went one month without someone rushing a dog into our vet hospital who had just consumed the 25-pound bag of food that was discovered in an open pantry. They ate it all. Uh, so again, you feed a dog, uh, some of these bowls, they can hold, they, they'll, they'll say, oh, it's a three-quart bowl. Okay, well, over full, you know, flowing on the floor, and all of a sudden you've got six quarts in a three-quart bowl. That's a lot of food. And anyone whose dog has uh, regurgitated kibble, for example, look at the size of that oh, yeah, kibble. It blows up in their oh, stomach. Oh, yeah. It goes in one size, it comes out double size, it's, and it's all over the place. Uh, you know, so I worry a lot about bloat, especially with large dogs, dogs with a deep chest, uh, smaller waist, uh, gastrointestinal vulvus. It's a killer. It will kill a dog within minutes. So I always worry about that. And then I worry about the bacteria. And then I worry about other animals getting into it. Um, so me, I've always been a controlled feeder. Always. And that's probably just harks back to, man, you, you didn't leave food out in Alaska. It was a, a stone. It was an ice stone within about 10 <laughs> minutes at this time of the year. So you didn't. The, the huskies, they all ate the food quickly. And then when I trained marine mammals for the military, no, there was no free feeding. That food was motivation to do the work that we need them to do. So maybe it's my imprinting. But again, having owned a vet hospital, bacteria is a concern and overeating is another concern. And even from just a direct beneficial reason of doing it is a big issue with a lot of dog owners today is they struggle with finding ways in which to incorporate structure into their dog's life. And feeding is one of them. Feeding is just something that you can do every single day that applies just a little bit of structure and routine into your dog's life. And, and it's a, it's a great way to, to reinforce, Hey, you have to work for this, or you have to behave at this moment. And it gives your dog something to anticipate routine, some predictability in its life. So even from a behavioral standpoint, it's beneficial. Yeah, and it also gives them the ability to control humans. Yes, we definitely have routine as far as dinner goes for the dogs in our house because they tell us every day when it's time to eat. Yep, so they're controlling humans. Hey, you human, get off the phone, get off the computer, get up and come in here and feed me. Or I'm going to drive you crazy. Yeah, so there you have it with that, which kind of leads into the very next question. So, Kira? Okay, if work and school were not a factor, is there an ideal routine for a dog? one that imitates and meets all of its instinctual needs, or is routine routine? So again, you kind of highlighted on that in the previous question, Joshua. Uh, routine is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for humans. It's a good thing for dogs because it provides predictive information. Uh, definitely talked about that last week. Predictive information is one lack of, is one of the leading causes of stress. And then having predictive information is one of the most beneficial ways to relieve stress because predictive information gives you control. And I just yes. talked about that with, and just kind of made light of our small dogs controlling us. Routines are great. I've always said that dogs thrive on the familiar. And therefore, if you're going to move a dog to a novel environment, case in point, you know, we got the holidays coming up around the corner. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. It's just a couple of months away, by golly. Here comes Thanksgiving. Here comes the holidays. If you're going to take your dog somewhere new to a family's house that the dog's never been to before, 
try to do all that you can to keep everything the same as best you can. Try to feed at the same time, out of the same bowl, feed the same food. Try to go on the same little walk in the morning if you can. It may be a different surrounding, but nevertheless, it is a walk. Anytime that we can do a routine, we provide predictive information, which then allows the animal to have control. And if you use that predictive information to control your dog, you're actually now supplying them with a third main factor of stress relief, uh, and that's social support. Social support, meaning, hey, why don't you sit? There you go. Stay. They're looking great. And there's your food on the floor and free. Bingo. Just that alone, you controlling the dog proves one thing. If there's danger, I'm a worthy companion. I can probably protect you because I can control you. And there's a stable hierarchy. And stable hierarchies, again, provide predictive information which allows for control and provides social support. So over and over again, I am going to tell you all day, every day, I'm going to tell you in the biggest routine in the world, stick to it. The routine that you would gouge your eyeballs out because you're so bored. It is so, oh my God, mundane, same thing every day. Your dog would love and they do love it. And they get stressed anytime there's the absence of it. Period. So, guys, routine, routine, routine. Okay. So, would you I say? Would, so, would you say that there is a special routine that would be beneficial to kind of answer the question? Well, or, any routines that, that evolve or, or surround survival always going to be number one. Routines, for example, eating, mm-hmm. eating at at certain times, eating a certain amount, going on walks. A lot of people think taking my dog for a walk is great exercise. Yes. However, it's so much more than that. So many dogs, when I moved here to the South, one of the first things, remember I told you, Kira, I said, whoever builds these privacy fences Mm -hmm. makes a darn good living. The issue here is this. I'm a dog. I'm behind this big old six foot, eight foot privacy fence. I hear things. I hear mechanized machines. I hear other dogs. I smell this but I never lay my eyes on it and laying my eyes on it helps me understand it. You know, again, predictive information is, doesn't mean you always get good stuff. You get bad stuff with it, but it allows you to control what you're going to do about it. And when you take a dog for a walk, you are now exposing them to all of those things that their senses were picking up. Now I can see it. So you're the dog that's been barking at me for the last two months. Oh, I kind of get it. There's a car going by. There's, there's lots of cars going by on this thing here, all these little funny looking machines. You bet. I, let me put to you this way, just in real short here, because I don't want to spend much time on it. When I train marine mammals, uh, uh, I trained dolphins for many, many years, incredibly intelligent animals, so much so that when I would train them during the day and train a dog in the evening, I hate to say it, dogs, I love you to death, but that was like hopping out of a Ferrari and getting into a Volkswagen. But with their intelligence, we would fly them all over the world and have them do operations for us in oceans all over the world. And anytime we did that, the first thing that we had to do was allow the dolphin to swim from their makeshift pens that we'd have for them, wherever we took them, all the way out to the operating area, which could be well over 20 miles, 30 miles. 
Let them follow the boat, swim right next to it, all over the operating area, and then drive the boat all the way back to the pen. Several hours per animal swimming right next to it. Only then, only then would they do their work because they had just mapped out their surrounding. They'd use their echolocation sonar as a GPS to map their surrounding. They knew how that should they become separated from us, how to get back to their food, how to get back to the safety of their pen. So guys, if a dolphin needs that, don't think for a second your dog doesn't. So again, any sort of routine, that's why if you take your dog for a walk, especially if you take your dog to a novel environment, please do walk it. Please do so. Guys, if you love your dogs, like we say we always do, get off your butt, take your darn dog for a walk. I mean it because it's, if dolphins acted like that, I can't even imagine what goes through our dogs, the stressors they incur. Well, I remember when we were traveling so much with Captain to all these cities for the Embracing the Wild and Your Dog tour, book tour, that was one of the first things we would do with him is walk. And it really helped to calm him down. And It did. It absolutely did. And, and it, even the other dog that we, we took with us, I always make that a point. If I take my dog somewhere new, I've, even if I'm staying in a hotel, even if we stop at a, at a rest stop, get the dog out, take it for a short walk. Because again, yeah, it may not be good. And not all predictive information is great if it comes too soon. For example, all of a sudden there's an alert that comes across our computers and says a meteor is going to smack Memphis in about a minute. Well, that didn't do me a whole lot of good. I mean, there's not a lot I'm going to be able to get done in the next minute. I'll try to wrap up the show. I promise, guys, I'll try to answer the next question. But other than that, that didn't do me a whole lot of good. So, again, I hope I didn't go too far down a road. I just need you to hear that. If our dolphins had to do that, your dog has to do that. And therefore, if walks are part of your routine, they should be part of your routine. Should certainly make sure that you always maintain that. Routines are wonderful, wonderful things for dogs. Okay. My three-year-old child locked himself in his room and was yelling for help. My dog looked worried and began whining. When I opened the door, my dog immediately calmed down. Was she trying to protect my son or was there something else at play? More likely something else at play. Uh, kind of hard to protect something that you can't even have. You, you don't have access to yourself. Uh, very difficult there. But it could have been to a certain degree. There's been more than a few uh, occasions in which uh, the mating pair would throw themselves on a grenade, uh, literally a grenade, a living grenade called a grizzly bear when it was seen trying to excavate the den. But for the most part, the issue at play here is the separation and the distress calls being made by the child. Anyone who's owned a dog for any length of time can tell me with, emphatically, their dogs can tell when they're upset, meaning when the, when the owner's upset. They mm -hmm. can. Let there be a fight between mom and dad and the dogs are gone. They're, not, they're nowhere close. But let mom or dad become suddenly emotional, very sad, or ill. And guess who's snuggled right? The dog who, who I've owned dogs. If I pet them, I did it for my benefit. It was as though they were going, all right, you feel better, Brian? Can we now go chase the ball or do something like that? Remember that routine thing? Uh, but if I was emotional uh, or if I was ill, there they are, flat up against your body. These are hyper social creatures. And the pack is everything. A stable hierarchy is everything to them. 
And when there's a distress call, like what would come from a three-year-old child who is separated from his pack, then yes, dogs are going to take notice. They're, they're going to. You will see a lot of whining, scratching at the door. They want access to that distressed member of the family. They do. Uh, I don't know so much as I'm here to save you and protect you or more from I'm just here to save you. Uh, again, uh, I, I witnessed myself uh, a wolf cub that had stepped into a deep hole that was left by a tree that uh, just got old or the wind blew it over. Nevertheless, left a big crater in the earth. The wolf cub stepped down in that. We heard the cries from a distance. My mentor and I, we moved in that direction enough to see the mother trying her best to get this wolf cub out of this hole. And uh, all the other cubs were gathered around, same thing, whining, pacing frantically back and forth. And this persisted until the mother was able to get the cub out of the hole. So we see these sort of things. This, this happens with dogs. Let a child get locked in a room like that, and, and there's going to be, hey, we're just not going to leave you here and let you die. No way. No, no, no. You're not too, you know, as a dog or as a wolf, if you're two years old, yeah, I will. You can just, by the way, in fact, get yourself out of that hole and go go move while you're at it because you got a little bit too big for your britches here. But not with a child. No way. So I, the deeper thing at hand here is simply I have a member of my pack that is distressed. And I do believe dogs can tell a little bit of a difference between the abilities. Not again, I'm not going to judge you as a child. That's why dogs attack children. But I can judge your abilities to survive, your abilities to control what happens to you. And based upon that, they, they will become more distressed the more helpless they perceive that human to be. So hope that answers that question. <laughs> You know, that's the only hard thing about radio is you're answering questions and you don't get the feedback and <laughs> and you really do hope that you did a, did some good on that. And I think we do because uh, we get more questions. Absolutely. So therefore, someone must fill that. Okay, guys, we're going to get ready to wrap up the show next week. Next week, we are going to title the show Descent into Consent. And here's why. Just a teaser. There's a weird thing. There's always some sort of weird thing going on in the pet industry. Like, you can't leave well enough alone. This is ultra weird, though. This is ultra weird. It's so exhausting. now, supposedly, there are rescue groups out there that are telling you that you have to have their consent to train the dog that you adopted. And then once you do get their consent, you have to get the consent from the dog to train it. Weird. We'll talk more about that next week. So definitely tune in for that. I can't even say that with a straight face. That's definitely weird. But until then, Joshua, where can they find us? You can follow us on our Facebook and at Just Taming the Wild. And then uh, subscribe to YouTube at Taming the Wild with a capital all wild. Or go to our Instagram at Taming the Wild Dogs. Very good. So now you know where to find us, TamingTheWild.com, Facebook, and YouTube. Guys, we'll see you next week. It's going to be a really funny show come next week. Have a great one. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.